c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict. and fabulous i'm jessica and i'm janelle and today is our birthday podcast by which i mean our birthdays land within a week of each other they do actually we're recording this approximately square between the two which means i am wizened now i am elderly you behind me (laughs) i am a crisp vintage 28 (laughs) whereas i am 30 Mm. (laughs) <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. Art by the wizened crown. <laughs> Over the hill. Actually, you and I are relentlessly baby-faced. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> we both have heart-shaped faces, and you've got fucking doll eyes. Yeah, I've also never been outside. This skin is pristine. Pale, milky flesh. I was ID'd the other week, so... <laughs> I'm still doing okay. I I am pasty enough. I have asthma, and sometimes I'll go into the nurse's office, and they'll be like, they'll start asking me questions like they think I have hypoxia. (laughs) So I'm like, no, it's just that I'm so pasty, you can see the blue of my veins through my skin. I can can breathe. (laughs) My dad was like, you don't look 28. I was like, thanks, dad. He's like, back in my day, we looked 28. It's like, yeah, all right. And then he lit his, like, ninth cigarette of the morning at, like, 10.30 a.m. And he's like, I don't understand why we used to age so much faster. Maybe it was the lead and the gasoline. Those were the days. I have never worn sunscreen. It's like, yeah, all right, Dad, I've got... <laughs> I've got some ideas. That was a running joke of my mom. She would just point at wizened little old ladies who were smoking, and she'd be like, oh, yeah, she's 28. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yes, so, I don't have a good segue from we're old to a lot of people died. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of the unending march of time and the yawning chasm of death that waits for us all, Janelle? (laughs) Oh, that's that's not, okay. This is why I do the segues. (laughs) Stick with me, kid, you'll be famous. We went full dark, no stars. This episode, I don't know that if we did a warning on the last episode, if we had a had a content warning. We had a non-warning content warning where you said that you didn't need a content warning just yet. All right, well, we need one now. This is what we were waiting for. Uh, a lot of this is very gross and sad. I feel like the details of how exactly gross and sad this was got really glossed over by people who are just sort of like fascinated with how big the explosion was. When people talk about the Halifax explosion, they just talk about it in, like, terms of kilotons, and not the number of people who lost eyeballs. Yeah, kilotons, not kilopersons. This was indescribably horrific when it comes to, like, things you could live through in the 20th century. If you had to be present for a historical event, this is not the one you'd pick. (laughs) When time travel tourism is invented, this will not be available. (laughs) I can imagine just there being, like, historical rubberneckers. With people who like to go hop from explosion to explosion. I mean, this is quite literally like a historical snuff film. This is horrific. You can't set off a 2.9 kiloton explosion in a major urban center and not have the results be just absolutely ghastly. 
The human body is not meant to withstand that. Make a little human being out of plasticine and throw them at a wall and you get a rough idea. Mmm. Mmm. Oh. Oh, but it gets so much better. There were so many unintended consequences of detonating an ammunition ship in the middle of a city. Completely unintended. Although I find it ironic that a boat made by the White Star Line was involved. The White Star Line was involved in a lot of major maritime disasters in the 20th century. The Titanic was their biggest fuck-up, but... Like, were they just incredibly irresponsible, or were they just very popular? Or just very unlucky? They just made so many boats that it was sort of a matter of time. You can't make all the boats without having some of the boats sink. Yeah, no matter how low the murder rate is in New York, there's always going to be another murder. Because, like, there's just that many people all on top of each other. Yeah. You you get serial killers in large urban areas because there's just so many people. And eventually, one of them's going to go a little funny. It's a lot of large numbers. To recap what we learned last time, the Mont Blanc was a French ship loaded with explosives. It had six million pounds of explosives on board. Just a a staggering amount of explosives. I I believe the technical term is quite a bit. Epic fuckload is the technical term. Um, So it it had collided in the Narrows, which is a part of the Halifax Harbor, with the Emo, a Belgian relief vessel operated out of Norway that was running empty. So it was an empty cargo liner, which made it harder to control. They got in a little bit of a game of chicken in the Narrows. They ended up colliding, and when they pulled apart, the sparks ignited the Mont Blanc. And the boat was abandoned by its crew, who knew that it was going to fucking blow. You would not stay to ride a six million pound stick of dynamite that had just been lit. I don't think you can call it chicken when the boat's that large. I think it has to be at least an ostrich. They're playing a game of high-stakes ostrich. But, uh, <laughs> the Mont Blanc ended up getting itself caught on a pier in Halifax at the north end of the city, and it burned for 19 and a half minutes before detonating at 9.05 a.m., absolutely devastating the city. When the Mont Blanc's cargo exploded, the Mont Blanc itself disintegrated in an instant. The, mm. There's, You can't visit the Mont Blanc because there is no ship left. It went completely... <laughs> Kaboom. It became hot shrapnel. (laughs) Basically, this is the outside of a grenade, is what happened to the Mont Blanc. You can't detonate that much explosives in a boat and have a boat left. Yeah, it's it's like the fucking ship of Theseus, except if it was just violently destroyed all at once. Yeah, kersplode. The blast wave from the explosion radiated out from the focal point of the explosion at a speed of 3,300 feet per second which is 23 times the speed of sound. I believe it's no- that is technically known as quite fast. So you were dead before you heard the explosion. Like, people were knocked down. They Nobody had any idea that this was coming. There was no warning whatsoever. You were just watching the ship, and then you were half a kilometer away, bleeding. There was no preparing for this. First-hand accounts from people who describe the explosion, they have a hard time even describing what happened. They're just like, yeah, I was watching it in the yard, and then I was under the veranda. Like... There's, there was just, like, a big flash, and then everything went black. There was very little awareness of what had even happened. It was literally, like, time skipped. It was that violent and that fast. So you could have just a bunch of people who'd been standing around each other just wake up in a field and all be missing the same amount of time. Yeah, it, it happened so quickly you couldn't process it. People often described a sensation like they were falling. Literally, they were watching the ship. Then all of a sudden you're tumbling through the air and you don't know what the fuck is happening. 
reminds me of a Douglas Adams quote uh, where they compare the experience of going through hyperspace as unpleasantly like being drunk. <laughs> What's so unpleasant about being drunk? Just ask a glass of water. <laughs> God, I miss Douglas Adams. <laughs> uh, a legend. A treasure. <laughs> Came up with the entire idea for Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy while lying drunk in a field, unable to stand. What a champ. That makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Absolute <laughs> champ. So, <laughs> the pressure at the center of the explosion was several thousand times the regular atmospheric pressure, and temperatures at the middle of the explosion reached 5,000 degrees Celsius, which is 9,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So, a, a little bit more than what you'd want to braise a chicken. Yeah. You're gonna overdo your dinner. You could flash fry a fucking sperm whale. <laughs> well, they flash fried a city. The force of the explosion destroyed the north end of Halifax immediately. In an instant. Like, one second, people are just going about their lives, watching the burning ship, having a grand old time, and the next second, the city is gone. It is well it's just done. Gone. The blast was so powerful that it blew out almost every window in the city, and it actually cracked windows up to 100 kilometers away. This is no small thing. Everything within a 2.6 kilometer radius of the explosion, which is 1.6 miles, was leveled or damaged beyond recognition. There has to be a level of loud that you can't even hear. It's hard to even fathom how violent this was. I live in the blast zone, and I can't see the fucking ocean, I'll tell you that. I don't live anywhere near the harbor, and yet if it happened now, my apartment would be gone. Completely. That's, That's wild. Vaporized. Vaporized. I live at the very edge of the explosion zone. I am about 2.5 kilometers from where this happened. And yet... Holy shit. My apartment would be leveled. And so would everything on my street. <laughs> like, my street was not particularly busy at the time. Like, I, I live on a street that has only recently become residential out of desperation. I live across from a bad motel and a worse diner. But this used to be just basically a highway out of town. People did live along it, but not quite to the same extent that they do now. And all these houses are post-1920 because they were leveled. If, if Americans want any context for the kind of place Janelle lives in, it's like the Canadian equivalent of the setting of every Stephen King novel. It is a little Stephen Kingy. They film a lot of ghost shows here because every inch of the city is, like, allegedly haunted. <laughs> like, if Maine was haunted as shit. Especially the North End. The ghost per square inch is crazy. <laughs> it's sort of accepted that if you live in the North End, like, your house is haunted. There's nothing you can do about it. The people who live in, like, the homes that were rebuilt over the exploded homes in the North End, frequently they'll feel somebody tap on their shoulder who's not there, there's cold spots. You just accept it. It's just part of life. Yeah, it's just, it's just like having a roommate. <laughs> a very quiet, very dead roommate. It's a bit like mine. Your roommate is dead? It's news to me, I just I mean, it. he's very quiet. <laughs> he might be dead, I haven't checked. <laughs> he's paying the rent, I don't care. His checks have yet to bounce. <laughs> In an instant, 6,000 people were left completely homeless, and 25,000 people were unable to occupy their homes because they were so badly damaged. You can't stay there. It's wintertime, and you got a big hole in the wall. So, absolute housing crisis. Even compared to Halifax today, that's, that's pretty bad. But the explosion threw up a cloud of smoke that rose nearly 12,000 feet in the air. That's 3,600 meters. 
And the force was so powerful that they felt this explosion in Cape Breton and PEI, which is up to 207 kilometers away. That's like, Those far. are other provinces. <laughs> far. Far. That's like, a... <laughs> I, 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 this is the sort of sound that you can feel in your bowels. Pieces of the Mont Blanc went absolutely everywhere. The hull of the ship was thrown more than a thousand feet in the air, and the anchor shank from the boat landed 3.2 kilometers, two miles, south of the blast site, and one of the guns landed 5.6 kilometers, or 3.5 miles, north of the blast site. <laughs> um, Shot put! Big explosion. Those pieces of the Mont Blanc, specifically the anchor and the gun, are still there. The anchor has been preserved at the spot where it landed. It's on a little monument now. The gun's actually stuck in the ground. So... <laughs> <laughs> it's been left there as a monument to just how incredibly violent this was. So you can go see those pieces of the Mont Blanc. They are still there. They are now historical monuments. You can go... If you visit them both in one day, you'll get a sense of how gigantic this explosion was. Oh, Absolutely. If I ever come back to Halifax while you're there, you're going to have to show me just all the devastation. I'm genuinely looking forward to it. Yeah, somebody made a walking tour of major sites from the explosion. Incredibly morbid, but we'll do it. <laughs> but the explosion actually displaced so much water that the floor of the harbor became visible. Whoo! Like Moses splitting the sea! You don't want to see the floor of the harbor. It's, something has gone horribly wrong if that's visible. So when the water rushed back in, it created a tsunami that swept Halifax with 18-meter-high waves. That is a 59-foot-tall wave. Six-story waves crashed into the city, which just added to the death and the devastation. Many people died in the Halifax explosion, not from the explosion itself, but because they were swept out to sea. Lard tundran. <laughs> Unbelievably traumatic. And it's, it's hard to tell the story of the aftermath of the Halifax explosion as one coherent narrative because it impacted so many different people in so many different ways. It's just everything happening at once to everybody. Everything sucked. It, it changed so many people's lives in an instant. It continued to change so many people's lives for years to come. It's hard to even narrow down whose stories to tell and whose stories to leave out. So we'll, we'll try to start with the statistics just to get an idea of how incredibly bleak this was. <laughs> Do you remember where you were when the Mont Blanc exploded? No, because it knocked me the fuck out. <laughs> Pretty much. When the explosion hit, 1,600 people died immediately. The force of the explosion effectively liquefied people on impact, killing them more or less instantly. Like A lot of people just died from the shockwave. You're not gonna suffer long if you're essentially soup. Some people were basically disintegrated. I mean, they just found pieces of people in the streets. Just chunks. My ancestor was never found. Is probably just a fine mist throughout the North End. Or was swept out to sea. Another possibility. Faint puff of carbon or a fish food. Some people, they just never found any pieces that were big enough to identify. Before DNA technology, there was only so much you could do with, like, a chunk of an arm. I did warn you that this would be gross and sad. I'm holding up my end of the bargain. Just a chunky beef stew of unidentifiable corpses. Some of the descriptions of the streets are just actually too graphic to read on this podcast. Some of them are just too gross. 
And when we say too gross, we mean too gross. <laughs> we mean too gross. If you've listened to any amount of our back catalog, you understand that we do not shy away from the heart of human darkness. <laughs> no, it's pretty bad. A lot of soldiers who returned from World War One around the time of the Halifax explosion were traumatized by the explosion. Like, they saw things after the explosion that they had never seen during the war. Uh, you finally think you're safe. I've tried to include snippets of, like, first-person testimony. A lot of people were too traumatized by what happened to write about it, but some people did manage to write down their experiences, often decades later. In total, though, there was the 1,600 that were killed. Around 400 died of their injuries in the following days or weeks, bringing the death toll to around 2,000. It's, it's impossible to say how many people died from the explosion because it's hard to quantify sometimes if somebody dies weeks later or some people were just simply never found. On top of the 2,000 dead, 9,000 people were injured, and of those, 6,000 were very seriously or gravely injured. If you were injured in the explosion, there was a good chance that it was going to scar you for life, physically. 250 bodies from the morgue were never identified, and Halifax is a port city. There's many people who just didn't have roots in the city. They were just there on a temporary basis, so... There's no one there to miss them. There's nobody there to miss them, unfortunately. And there's always going to be people who just don't have any family. Many of the missing were never found. The blast set most of the North End on fire. And since it was a cold December day when this took place, most homes had their stoves burning when the explosions hit. Coal-burning stoves were knocked over by the explosion, and because it was early winter, most of the homes had nearly full coal stockpiles. So when those coal stockpiles ignited, they gave the fires enough fuel to burn for days. Ooh. And they did. Yeah, because that's the thing about coal is it's very long burning. Like, there have been incidences where somebody accidentally set a coal mine on fire. And some coal mines have been burning for decades. <laughs> but yeah, that was the big crisis, was that everybody lived in wood homes heat by coal burning stoves. When the explosion hit, all those stoves got upended and all those houses burned. So many people simply burned to death. They were trapped in their houses. Their houses had collapsed on top of them and they couldn't get out. And there wasn't enough firefighters in town to fight this blaze. There wasn't enough equipment. They only had one official pump truck, which was trying to turn... We'll, we'll talk about what happened to the pump truck, but it was it was not in a good place. It's trying to spit out a, a forest fire is basically what this is. Literally bucket brigades. You're trying to put this fire out with bucket brigades, which is just people handing each other buckets. You've got 11,000 people who are either injured or dead in a city of 60,000, so you're, you're really understaffed trying to put this out. Janelle, would you say that the north end of the city was the poor end of the city? It occurs to me that disproportionately working class people would live near the piers. So that would mean higher population density as well. Halifax has always been kind of working class, but yes, the older half of the city is the southern half, is, is kind of the central half of the city. So the older part of the city, which was the more established families, was not hurt in the explosion. It was the newer parts of the city. So yeah, it was more of a working class area. It was the town of Richmond. It was it was a suburb, but it was definitely a working class. And we'll talk about some of the things that were taken out by the explosion. It was a lot of factories, pier workers, that sort of thing. So like it would hurt the industry of the city quite quite severely. Really bad. One of the main industries in the city at the time was the Acadia Sugar Refinery, and it was... Mm. Uh, I think they found part of the foundation after it exploded. And this is the same sugar factory where everyone got on the roof to watch? Yeah, oh, they died. Yeah, they died oh, up there. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, the, the, whole, the whole factory was obliterated. It was right, right at the explosion site. I don't know that any of the workers survived. 
I mean, if they did, they would have woke up in a different zip code. Yeah, everything so. was obliterated. It's hard to even imagine how much of the city so many things were just obliterated on site. 500 train cars from a nearby train station were destroyed. There was a train station right near the explosion site, and along with the station itself and 55 of its workers. The people who were not killed instantly in the blast were mostly pinned under rubble awaiting rescue. There was a major rescue operation just digging people out. This reminds me of a particularly upsetting story I heard of from the 9-11 aftermath, where they had spent so long trying to find living bodies in the rubble that it was upsetting the search dogs. And before they went home, one of the workers hid in the rubble so that the dog would feel better. (laughs) They just hid a dude so that the dog could find him. I heard this story. They brought search and rescue dogs to the 9-11 rebel, not cadaver dogs, which are apparently two very different things. And yeah, search and rescue dogs are not trained to find dead people, and they were very depressed that they kept finding dead people. Aww. Whereas, like, cadaver dogs are just like, I found a dead thing, are you happy? Treats. (laughs) Yeah. No, pretty much. But no rescue dogs, unfortunately, in this situation. It was just people with shovels. That's all you had. Interestingly enough, though, some incredibly morbid journalists at the CBC, like, talked to experts... And it turns out that if the exact same explosion were to take place today, the impact would actually be worse. It would be so much harder to recover. If the same explosion happened right now, it would kill more people than the Hiroshima atomic bomb. (laughs) Halifax back in the day didn't really have a lot of skyscrapers, and it does now. And even though most of the city's skyscrapers are further to the south, out of the blast, they say that they're so much like weaker, and there's so much glass in all of them, that if the explosion were to happen today, it would take down the skyscrapers. Yeah, and I suppose it's it's less serious if you're only talking about maximum five-story buildings, for the most part. Yeah, and usually they were just, like, detached single-family homes. Halifax is so much more densely populated now. Even in the blast zone, there's, like, 20-story buildings. So they said, like, if it were to happen today, it would be difficult to even fathom recovering from it. So when the fire had first broken out on Pier 6, before the Mont Blanc exploded, uh, when it was just attached to the pier and burning... The nine-person crew of the Patricia, Canada's first motorized pumper fire truck. Very fun. Wow. I know. Innovative. fun. It might have been Eastern Canada. I might have written that one wrong. Um, They responded to the blaze because they were Halifax's only modern fire truck. The good men of the Trish. The good men of the old Patricia. They were hooking up their hose lines a few meters from the ship when it exploded. Oh, boy. Not great. Our only fire truck blew up in the explosion. Our only pump truck. (laughs) That did not last long. No, it didn't. So eight of the men of the nine-person crew were killed instantly. The only survivor, Billy Wells, was sitting in the driver's seat of the truck and backing it up to a fire hydrant when it happened. He was blown out of the truck by the force of the explosion and carried up a hill by the tsunami before becoming tangled in overhead telegraph wires. Holy shit. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, this explosion, like, people came to in the weirdest places. When he came to, he was tangled in the telegraph wires. All of his clothes except for his pants and one boot had been blown off his body. (laughs) He was extremely seriously injured, and he still had half of the steering wheel in his hands. (laughs) He kept it. He kept that half of the steering wheel. There was, like, a picture of it in the article. Absolutely fascinating. He... he fucking earned it. (laughs) In an interview with the CBC, he said, and I love that they transcribe this exactly, he said, oh, I'll tell you, it was some blaze. I guess it was going up five or six hundred feet in the air. 
It blew all the toes off me, but I wasn't so badly hurt. <laughs> it took a chunk out of me arm, that's all. <laughs> took a hunk out of me arm, that's all. They wrote it down exactly. Yeah, he lost all of his toes and a chunk of his arm in the explosion. Blew, blew all the toes off me. <laughs> He had a he had a positive attitude about it. <laughs> like that is that is that is a very positive framing, you strange old pirate accident <laughs> fireman. <laughs> Everybody around here has a bit of like an R matey lilt to them. Like you just <laughs> you live by the sea long enough and you just have kind of a low key pirate accent. Oh, get in the car. We're going to the bar. Like, everybody talks like that, unironically, at all times. And, like, children talk like this. It's very disorienting. It's very jarring. Yeah, no, they do. They talk like little pirates. It's very hard to get used to. But when he described the scene in Halifax after the explosion, he said, The sight was awful, with people hanging out of the windows dead. Some of the people were hanging out of the windows with their heads missing, and some were thrown onto the overhead telegraph wires. Oof, oof, oof. People who had been leaning out of the windows to look at the explosion often just got their heads blown off their bodies. Oh, just decapitated by the uh, the shock wave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. he's got a bunch of fucking Bad. hanging corpses. Ugh. Yeah, there was just chunks of people, people dead hanging out the windows, decapitated people hanging out the windows. You had just, like, legs in the street. You had people tangled up in the overhead telegraph wires, some alive, some not. Like an explosion at a mannequin factory. Blood everywhere. Except gorier. Awful. Horror movie shit. He spent months recovering in the hospital and he was scarred for the rest of his life because he lost like a chunk of the muscle in his arm, but he did recover. When asked how he survived the explosion, he replied, I guess there wasn't room in hell for me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure that's the premise of like Dawn of the Dead. (laughs) That's what I'm going to say for the rest of my life when people ask me why I'm still alive. There's not room in hell for me. There's a bit of a lineup at the River Styx. <laughs> yeah, he lived until 1971, and there is now a street in North Halifax, Wells Street, named in his honor. To this day, the Halifax explosion is the greatest mass loss of life for firefighters in Canadian history. Yeah, I know... Sh- no kid. Like, the only thing that's shocking about that is that we even had that many firefighters. Canada doesn't have a lot of events where people die en masse. Like, we're, we're not a country where that happens very often. As you can imagine, getting a blazing neighborhood under control was immensely challenging once the only pump truck in town had been destroyed. Evaporated, Janelle. <laughs> There's, you can actually see it. They, they have photos of, like, the wreckage. I think it's in a museum somewhere of what's left of the Patricia. It's pretty crumpled. Uh, had a rough time. It did have a rough time. And some jackass stole her steering wheel. Half the steering wheel. Only half, half the steering wheel. <laughs> <laughs> to complicate the problem, firemen came from the US and other parts of Canada to provide relief, and they brought their own equipment, only to discover that their equipment was not compatible with the hose hookups on Halifax oh, fire course. hydrants. Which is the dumbest that is twist. the stupidest <laughs> fucking problem. Stupidest fucking problem. This is why we have standardized things now. Because, yeah, they brought their equipment. They brought trucks, they brought hoses, and then none of it fit onto the fire hydrants. Infuriating. Oh, boy. Another notable story from the explosion is the story of Vincent Coleman. And if you grew up in Canada in the 1990s or earlier, you probably recognize him from a Heritage Minute, which was these, like, educational one-minute-long documentaries that used to run on Canadian network television during commercial breaks. Yeah, it was basically, like, ads for Canadians made by Canadians for Canadians. 
Like, we were trying to sell Canada to ourselves. Yeah, they weren't previews of anything. It was just, like, a one-minute documentary on, like, a moment in Canadian history. And not even usually, like, inspiring moments. In the United States, they sort of give you the highlights reel. Our, our glorious history. history. Look at these victories. But, but in Canada, the, the Canadian government is just pumping out and funding a whole bunch of these interesting shorts that make us look like assholes. <laughs> yeah, a lot of them are just like, look at this remarkable person. Then they were murdered by racism. And you're like, oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. This man tried to walk across Canada and then he died. <laughs> yeah, a lot of them are really dark. They don't shield children from reality. <laughs> in no. 90s In 90s Canada, they didn't give a fuck. I remember learning about the creator of insulin. Frederick Banting. Yeah, they're like, how did he figure out insulin? They're like, oh, he he gave a whole bunch of dogs diabetes. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, fuck. <laughs> a lot of them died. A lot of them died. Holy shit, I just opened up Google, and there's a picture of Terry Fox, who I just referenced. <laughs> <laughs> it knows. It's, it's their fucking banner today. Oh, God. Oh, oh, that's right. It is Terry Fox week. I, I forgot. <laughs> oh, I forget every year. Damn it. I feel like part of the reason why we're so fixated on Terry Fox is just because, like, they put his week at the beginning of the school year before anyone really gets serious. It's true. You gotta do your Terry Fox run. Don't think those will be happening in COVID year, but, you know. Vincent Coleman was a dispatcher for the Intercolonial Railway at the Richmond Depot, which was the train station located just 750 feet from Pier 6, which was destroyed in the Halifax explosion. So he and a co-worker were just hanging out watching the ship burn, when a sailor ran by and warned them that it was a munition ship and that it was about to blow. The two of them began to flee the area, but then Coleman remembered that a train traveling from New Brunswick with 300 passengers was due to arrive at the station in only a few minutes. He raced back to the train station to send out a telegram to warn the train that it needed to stop and not enter the city. There's a lot of different versions of the exact message that he sent that have been reported, but the most common version is that he said, Hold up the train. Ammunition ship afire in harbor, making for Pier 6, and will explode. Guess this will be my last message. Goodbye, boys. He waited at the station for several minutes to hear the confirmation message that the train had stopped at a safe distance. But by the time the confirmation came through, it was too late for Vincent to escape. He was killed at his post at 9.04am. He is credited with saving the lives of at least 300 passengers on the train, and his telegram message was also heard by other dispatchers all along the railway, which allowed other cities to respond quickly to the disaster, potentially saving more lives. Today, one of the Halifax Dartmouth ferries is actually named after him. Good man, Vincent. Good man. Sacrificed himself to save... Good man. A train full of people. Literally the trolley problem in real life. (laughs) (laughs) In his honor, every time I bring up a trolley problem, I'm just going to name the conductor Vincent. (laughs) <laughs> in his honor. In except, his honor. Except it's like the trolley problem if the conductor has the option to throw himself down on the track to stop the train. It, it's an innovative solution <laughs> to the moral problem. They do that version where it's just like, oh, there's a fat man. If you push the fat man onto the train, it's like, yeah, but like, maybe you could just stop it. <laughs> if you were enough of a mensch like Vincent. <laughs> exactly. Rather than abusing the fat. (laughs) What, do you think he's worth less just because he's a little tubby? We all like ourselves some cake once in a while. (laughs) There's no need for murder. It's got very personal for you very quickly. It's insensitive. There we go. When the explosion happened, the first responders on the scene were sort of like 
whoever was left alive and like mostly in one piece. Can you lift a shovel? Congratulations, you're a first responder now. <laughs> oh, can you imagine getting drafted into the fire department? That's fascinating. It, it was. It was like, if, are you physically capable of like doing something? Then do the thing. That's it. The northern half of the city was like gone in an instant, but the southern half of the city was mostly intact. So as soon as people like figured out what had happened, people just headed for the destroyed part and just started digging people out of the rubble. Whatever police, firefighters, and military personnel were, like, still alive joined in soon afterwards. And at that point, every vehicle in the city that was still functional was commandeered for the rescue and recovery effort. And I mean literally every vehicle. Every car, every truck, every horse-drawn buggy was put to work hauling the dead or the wounded away from the wreckage. And when you read first-hand accounts, there's many people who are like, Yeah, and then I was brought to the hospital in a fish cart. <laughs> anything. Anything with wheels. Just on top of a pile of salmon. Or cod, I suppose. They had 11,000 people to haul out of there, and they only had 50,000 people to do it. It's like, yeah, get in the fucking fish cart. <laughs> we're going to the hospital. Hope you don't mind the <laughs> smell. <laughs> anything. People were just carried there on random carts, random buggies, just literally anything. Which I think the modern equivalent would just be laying somebody over your fucking hot dog cart and just trawling them away. Yeah, just, like, get on the roof of my smart car, we're going to the hospital. (laughs) (laughs) So, fire crews from as far away as Amherst, Nova Scotia, and Moncton, New Brunswick, arrived in the city on relief trains before the end of the day, and they just started going to work fighting fires and digging people out of collapsed buildings. Hospitals were completely overwhelmed within hours of the explosion. Like, literally overflowing. The new Camp Hill Military Hospital had just opened in the city, And after the explosion, they opened to civilian casualties, taking in 1,400 people on December 6th alone. But that still wasn't nearly enough. No, you'd be having to do some heavy triage. Yeah, and you gotta remember that, like, it wasn't just everybody heading to the hospital immediately. This was, like, a steady stream of victims. They were digging people out for days after the explosion. People had become trapped in basements or pinned under wreckage, and they had to wait for rescue. It wasn't, like, one big influx. It was a constant influx. There was just a steady stream of new victims in need of medical attention. So many of the naval ships in port at the time sent rescue parties ashore to help with the relief efforts. The HMS High Flyer, the HMS Changuinola, the HMS Knight Templar, and the HMS Calgarian, which are all British military vessels, began just taking wounded aboard to be treated by the ship's doctor. Like, anything. A nearby U.S. Coast Guard ship also sent a party ashore to start assisting. In the immediate aftermath of the explosion, people were convinced that the Germans had attacked. Like, people did not immediately clue in that the burning ship had exploded. There was a big panic that the Germans had bombed them. It was hard to fathom that something so horrific had happened by accident. So, at that point, the military was on high alert. The defenses around the harbor went on high alert. People were just terrified that another explosion was coming. And rumors of a second explosion actually hampered the rescue efforts. At one point, a cloud of steam shot into the air as naval personnel put out a fire at at their ammunition magazine, which is a very important thing to not have on fire. If we've learned anything! But people freaked the fuck out. They thought that this was a warning sign of a second explosion and started fleeing the area to evacuate. Which is a bad thing when you're in the middle of rescuing people. The people you were rescuing can't just rescue themselves. Yeah, no, they're stuck. You gotta get in there. 
that makes a certain level of sense because, like, why would you necessarily connect the two? And also because we tend to want big things that happen to have, like, a purpose or have a meaning or have some kind of sensicalness because that helps us make sense of the world. It's a bit how conspiracy theories largely crop up about real events that just feel too small or too arbitrary or too easy to explain the horrificness of their consequences. Like, we want the cause to be proportional to the consequence. That's why JFK's assassination has a huge amount of conspiracy theories around it. But when the almost the exactly the same thing nearly happened to Ronald Reagan, like he was injured in a almost identical assassination attempt, nobody thought anything of it because he survived. Yeah, we hate the idea that anything in history could happen because of small mistakes or on accident. We hate that. The idea that, like, somebody made a small navigation error in a boat and leveled a city is not satisfying. And they were in the middle of World War One. There was already a lot of fear that the Germans were coming. They were stringing nets across the harbor because they were convinced that they were going to be the target of German attacks. They had nightly lockdowns and they had nightly blackouts. They were convinced a German attack was coming. Yeah, so they just sort of slot this into their pre-existing concerns. Yeah. Within an hour, though, the city itself had realized what had happened. They realized that this wasn't an attack. This was a munition ship that had exploded. And so they kind of had the defenses stand down. The military personnel who were manning the city's harbor defenses were reassigned to the city to start helping with the relief. Two American ships that happened to be in the area, the USS Tacoma and the USS Von Steuben, both saw and felt the explosion and went to Halifax to see what the fuck that was about. So they arrived at 2 p.m. and at 2.30 p.m. and they also started to aid in the rescue. An American steamship that had been in dock for repairs, the Old Colony, which is a great name for a ship, was still relatively intact after the explosion and it was quickly converted into a hospital ship by Navy medical staff from the British and American crews that had responded. So like anything that had a roof still basically became a hospital. It wasn't enough. Not even close. So crews went to work clearing rubble off the train tracks at the edge of the city, and the first train left the city at 1.30pm that afternoon, loaded up with a doctor and several train cars full of wounded people in need of treatment. Basically, if you were in good enough shape to survive the train trip to Truro, which is another city about, I want to say, two, three hours away from here, if you were good enough to survive the train trip there, you were going to Truro. Congratulations! <laughs> Road trip! Bring some snacks! Yeah, a lot of people ended up in Truro. Even a lot of the homeless were shipped to Truro. Families in Truro would literally just line up at this railway station and just take in whoever got off the train. Just holding up a sign saying whatever. Yeah, basically whatever. It was a lot of people who ended up homeless in the explosion were just taken in by random strangers. It's the maritime way. Basically, anybody who had any space to take people in took people in. We'll put you up in the pantry. Yeah, they were shipping people all over wherever the fuck. They were taking people in. Truro was the main place because Truro is like the only other major city in Nova Scotia. But yeah, you would just be put on a train and when you got off the train, some random family would be like, You, you live in our house now. <laughs> Congratulations. You've won the sleeping on our floor sweepstakes. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> and this is a time when people have families of, like, 11. This is the early 20th century. So if, if you're lucky enough that everyone in your family survived, which is not often the case, or even you and your four surviving children were just going to Truro, or going wherever, going to Hammond's Plains, like, there's a lot of small towns in, in and around this area that were just taking people in. 
Relief trains started to arrive throughout the day, mostly from eastern Canada. By nightfall on December 6th, trains of supplies and personnel had arrived from Truro, Kentville, Amherst, Stellarton, Pictou, and Sydney, which are names that mean something to you if you live in Nova Scotia, and from Sackville, Moncton, and St. John, New Brunswick, one of which is my hometown. I am from Moncton. Hooray for me. Aren't there like eight different Sackvilles? Yeah, I was like, we really like the name Sackville. There's a lot of things named Sackville in the Maritimes. This is the Sackville, New Brunswick, where I have also lived. It's an interesting place. I have been very drunk in all corners of it. (laughs) It's a tradition. It's the town where Janelle got very drunk and fought a swan. (laughs) I know for Uh, a fact the swan is dead now. I've outlived it. (laughs) (laughs) The swan still haunts you. The ghost of the swan. See, I I, I prefer the story where you, you were traveling to Quebec... And you were chaperoning some 18-year-olds who got uproariously drunk and then slept on a park bench? Oh, yeah. I left a bunch of 18-year-olds passed out on a park bench at Bishop's University in Lennoxville, Quebec. Yeah. Super (laughs) responsible of me. In Uh, fairness, I was 19. (laughs) You were were given responsibility by seniority alone, and that seniority was slim. Listen, the ground was real tilty. (laughs) Yeah, I, I had a lot of debate weekends where I was assigned an 18-year-old novice and I was deeply concerned about getting them back alive because otherwise I was never getting funded again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jessica and I both competed in intercollegiate college debate all through That's our university. How we know each and, other. Uh, the objective is not to debate well, it's just not to die. That's... <laughs> <laughs> just to survive the weekend. Don't die at a Debate tournament in Saskatoon. <laughs> you want to live to get back to Alberta. See, I, I remember the first time you and I took a trip to Saskatoon for a, a debate weekend. And we stopped at a gas station and you just looked over at me with solemn eye. And you said, there are no laws here, only wheat. <laughs> oh, yeah, I did say that. We were talking about the traffic laws, which are utterly unenforced the moment you cross the Albertan border. <laughs> We went from Edmonton to Saskatoon at like 130 kilometers an hour. (laughs) And then we upped it a little bit. (laughs) Hooray. But most of the significant relief efforts after the Halifax explosion just came from random Haligonians, which is really what we're called. That's really the name for people who live in Halifax. We're Haligonians. Sounds like a puppet from Fraggle Rock. We do sound like a character from Fraggle Rock. Every able-bodied Haligonian was involved in some way. You were either digging rubble, putting out fire, transporting people. People just showed up at the hospitals to just volunteer. Just put me to work. I'll do whatever the hell. There was so much to do, it kind of stopped mattering if you had training or not. If you were upright and not bleeding, like, here's a bandage, start patching people. Like, you know, people were doing all kinds of volunteer work. If you're doing something, it's helping. You don't have to be doing it well. Power lines and telegraph wires in the city went down the instant the blast hit, of course, so the city was without power and without communication. So uninjured children volunteered as messengers in the aftermath, and they were just used to run messages between different sites, like little homing pigeons. I think I remember that from Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, just human messenger children. The train that Vincent Coleman gave his life to save also stepped up to help. I just don't trust children to relay messages efficiently. They're gonna get distracted. Can you imagine, like, important medical information's just, like, being relayed by a six-year-old who just survived one of the worst disasters in human history? 
Wonderful. Dirty, sticky hand. Just with a vital message. Yeah, what you need to find out whether your dad's still alive. The only person that can help you is this, like, bleeding, sticky six-year-old. Wonderful. But the inbound train from New Brunswick that Vincent Coleman had given his life to save actually stepped up to help right away. They stopped the train on the outskirts of the city. They noticed that the city then exploded. The train was slightly damaged, but not actually enough to bring it out of commission. It was still in working order. So as soon as the explosion happened, people just jumped out of the train and started clearing fucking rubble. The passengers used the train's emergency tools to just start digging people out of the rubble, bandaging their wounds with the sheets from the sleeper car beds. They then just stuck all the wounded people they rescued on the train and sent them to Truro. <laughs> Whatever the opposite of a train robbery is. Can you imagine just how confusing that would be? Your house falls on you. Some random stranger, like, digs you out with a train shovel, wraps you in a bed sheet, and then you're on the way to Truro. Like, how unbelievably disorienting would that be? <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't even know what the fuck was going on. You were just asleep in your bed. <laughs> and I... Yeah, like, it was, it was 9.05 in the morning, so it's like, you're just making breakfast, just doing your thing, and then, yeah, you're just wrapped in a bed sheet, being put on a train. Yeah, a house falls on you and suddenly you're on a train. I would be upset. I'd be perplexed. Completely out of order. I expect this to be scheduled in advance. <laughs> My jimmies would be rustled. <laughs> Nothing worse than a rustled jimmy. <laughs> Except a, maybe a, a flabbergasted James. <laughs> At the height of the rescue efforts, 62 hospital sites and first aid stations were set up around the city. It's a lot. A city of 60,000 people was absolutely and entirely unequipped to deal with a sudden influx of 2,000 bodies, so a mortuary committee was established at City Hall before the dust had even settled on the morning of the explosion. The Chibucto Road School in the city's west end was relatively undamaged, so it was chosen to be the site of the main explosion victims morgue. Super cheerful place. The basement was converted into a giant makeshift morgue, and the classrooms were converted into coroner's offices. The Chibucto Road School actually still exists. It is now the Maritime Conservatory of Performing Arts, and it is for sure haunted as fuck. So fucking haunted. So fucking haunted. Like, literally every room in this building has been a coroner's office. Literally every single one has had many corpses. You can look up pictures of what the basement of the Chibucto Road School looked like after the explosion. Just literally rows upon rows upon rows of corpses covered in white sheets. It's haunting to look at. I'm sure that building is beyond haunted. The funeral home that handled most of the explosion victims literally had so many of them that it would stack them in the streets. They had stacks and stacks of coffins in the streets around the funeral home. That's a hell of an inbox. Inbox, outbox. That funeral home is now a very fancy restaurant, and it's also, like, the most haunted oh. location in the city. It's actually, like, known for it. Oh, Ghost hunters shocked. come from all over the world to dine at this restaurant because it has so many strange and unusual things happen. The staff are apparently not even bothered by things falling off shelves, cold spots, people tapping them on the shoulder. Like, they're just used to it. Same shit as usual. It's the Five Fishermen's Restaurant, if you ever want to have, like, a haunted dining experience. Apparently the salad bar is particularly haunted. <laughs> particularly haunted salad bar is the best thing ever. Particularly haunted salad bar is an excellent band name. <laughs> <laughs> I actually recently shot a short called Ghost Comic Episode 3 
at a, uh, what is apparently a haunted old spaghetti factory. And, and like, my, my, my first response was just like, how many people could have possibly died in an old spaghetti factory? <laughs> I can't even tell you how angry I would be if I had to spend eternity haunting an old spaghetti factory. It's only slightly more dignified than haunting a McDonald's. It's like haunting an Olive Garden. It's awful. <laughs> Except I'm under the impression that at Olive Garden, they don't just, you know, heat up their spaghetti by microwaving it between two damp paper towels. Mm-hmm. God, I hate the old spaghetti factory. <laughs> Almost everyone I know does. Like, the best meal I've ever had at an old spaghetti factory was a spinach salad. <laughs> mm, something that they couldn't microwave. Yeah, it's just something that they couldn't cook. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anybody who enjoys the old spaghetti factory. Um, this is the opposite of an endorsement. This is this they, is not an ad. Never... This was not. This, this is, is not, not sponsored this content. Is the opposite of an ad. <laughs> this is this is whatever the reverse of an ad is. We probably have to pay them. I think that's called being sued. But. <laughs> The old spaghetti factory, like, I had a friend who would just insist on going there because it was cheap, quote-unquote. I'm like, yeah, you know what's also cheap? Going home and making your own. And I promise, no matter how much of a ten-thumbed cripple you are, you can make better spaghetti by even trying. You don't even have to boil the water. Just eat it fucking dry. (laughs) (laughs) It is a step up. Munch it up like a horse. (laughs) Crunchy. (laughs) the coroner at the time of the halifax explosion was arthur s barnstead which is an excellent name and his father had been the coroner just a few years earlier who handled the hms titanic disaster victims so this part kind of got left out of the james cameron movie but the victims and wreckage of the titanic were retrieved by canadians and brought to halifax convenient lapse just we are the janitors of the world every major event we just hang out to clean up just sweeping up corpses. After World War II ended, we just stayed to like rebuild Italy. Just to tidy. We're sort of we're sort of like the national equivalent of that friend who stays in the morning to help you pick up the beer cans. Yeah, we stay after the house party to just to just help you out a little bit. That's that's us. Helping you mop up the beer, get the red wine stains out of the couch. That's us. You didn't notice when you arrived, you, you, you kind of forgot that you even invited us, but we'll help you clean up the puke in the morning. So all of the, the Titanic victims were brought to Halifax. Many of them are still here. 209 bodies in total were brought to Halifax, and we still have 150 of them. They were actually embalmed like on the boats on the way back to Halifax, which is a gross fact you didn't need, but wow. can now never get out of your head. Yeah, just like a, just, there's pictures of them, them like embalming Titanic victims on the deck of, like, a random Canadian tugboat. Uh, I suppose they wanted them to be identifiable. Yeah, they did. That was the whole point. And and then they put them in sarcophaguses? Yeah, they just brought you over in a box. Just, like, fish, but not. Like some good old Newfoundland cod. (laughs) Except you're a victim of one of the worst maritime disasters in human history. If you couldn't be identified, you stayed here. And if your family couldn't afford to ship you home, you stayed here. Which was, I mean, a lot of people. The the, the third class passengers notoriously didn't make it out well. Actually, the third class passengers are on the bottom of the ocean. Their bodies didn't eh. get retrieved at all. No. <laughs> only, only a very small fraction of the Titanic victims were ever retrieved. Most of them were just 
in the ocean. Most of the poor didn't have the luxury of having their corpse ever discovered by anything other than a grouper fish. Yeah, you didn't get fished out of the ocean, I'm afraid. <laughs> Most of them are in the Fairview Lawn Cemetery, which is not far from where I'm at now. They're buried in the shape of the Titanic, which seems morbid. That's, yeah, that's a bit camp. Yeah, they're... Their graves are laid out in the shape of the bow of a giant boat, which which was an interesting flair. Yeah. Of all the things that should be novelty, I don't think novelty graveyard is the best idea. Not good. If you looked Catholic or Jewish, you got to go be buried at their cemeteries. I'm just not sure that monuments to the dead should be whimsical. <laughs> no, it's... It, It's weird that they made it a tourist attraction at the time. (laughs) Just a bit odd. (laughs) A little odd. When you go there, it's a little like, oh, oh, they really did this. Okay. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I guess people in 1912 had a sense of humor. I... About mass disasters, I guess. I mean, I suppose you eventually get used to it, but jeez, you guys. (laughs) Not cool. (laughs) I mean, if you visit Halifax, I will take you to the boat graves. They're buried in the shape of a boat. You can't miss it. (laughs) They've also, like, put signs up for the tourists that are like, Titanic dead, this way. It's all very incredibly tasteful. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's basically the Disneyland of the North. Mm, I mean, most people who visit Halifax have no idea that the Titanic victims are buried here. I would say that most people in the world are unaware of that fact. Mm. Um, so, like, American tourists come here because I guess they've run out of other places to go. And then they're like, they see a sign that's like, by the way, have you visited our Titanic dead? And they're like, what? So that's, <laughs> you know, that's how that tends Woo. to go down. Fun. <laughs> We've got some famous corpses. <laughs> roll up, roll up. <laughs> I could totally work for Tourism Halifax. Hire me. I would be excellent at it. It's just ghosts and corpses all the way through. (laughs) Join me for Corpse Week, Halifax's newest attraction. (laughs) When the Titanic disaster occurred, they actually had a bit of advance warning that all these bodies were coming. The boat sank on April 15th, but most of the bodies did not arrive in Halifax till April 30th. So Arthur Barnstead's father had used that time to devise a system to deal with a huge influx of bodies coming in all at once in order to keep everything organized and maximize the chances of identification. It was so successful that his notes were used to identify six previously unidentified victims in 1992, based on historical records. I know. Dude liked detailed notes. And when the Halifax explosion hit, Arthur Barnstead was able to implement his father's system right away which contributed to the relatively high rate of identification for the time. The system is fairly straightforward, like it's really nothing revolutionary by today's standards. When they brought a body in, that body was immediately assigned a number. All the clothing and personal items found with the body would be bagged and then tagged with the same number, and then they would note down any identifying features of each numbered body and just photograph everything. Oh, so they're... They're just keeping the effects together. That makes perfect sense. Uh, Before this, I'm guessing, yeah, they just went by the, like, well, stack him in the corner and we'll get to them later system for unidentified (laughs) disaster victims. But this incredibly basic system made a huge difference. This very easily could have been complete chaos. People's loved ones very easily could have been lost forever in the shuffle. Like picric acid, you can't just keep granddad in the back of a high school. (laughs) 
Shed. You can't. You can't keep him in the basement of a high school forever. Both will eventually explode, but Granddad will do less damage. <laughs> He's gonna start to smell after a while. <laughs> I mean, it is kind of remarkable that, like, in all of this chaos, the guy had the presence of mind to be like, hey, no, we need to, like, do identify people. So, in the weeks after the explosion, family members and loved ones would have to go to the Chibucto Road school and go down to the basement to identify their loved ones. And the system made it fairly straightforward. They had the numbered and organized catalog of who was down there, what they had on them, any identifying markers. So if you came in looking for, like, a missing 10-year-old blonde boy, they knew which bodies they should show you to make an identification. So you didn't have to just, like, wander around seeing hundreds of corpses. We have the 10-year-old blonde boys stacked over here. (laughs) Right this way. (laughs) All of the bodies were laid out in rows covered in white sheets. So when you came in, you'd tell them who you were looking for. It was often more than one person, unfortunately. And somebody would just take you around the basement, lifting the sheets off of bodies that match your description until you found the people that you were looking for. And there was really no shielding people from the trauma or cushioning the blow in any way. Like, there just wasn't time. Well, no, they have, like, a church bake sale of corpses in a basement. That's not really... Today, when you, when you experience death, it's very cushioned. They make your loved one look all nice. People are very sympathetic. There's lots of privacy and time for mourning, and you can take your time, and people will comfort you. None of that. None of that. Mm. Get in the basement, look at the corpses. We can't make this dignified. At best, we can make it bureaucratic. <laughs> Just tell me when we hit your corpse. Is this your corpse? Is this your corpse? It's like a really bad magician, except instead of cards, it's dead bodies. Who may or may not be your mom. This is just, like, the cherry on top of this shit cake. Like, everybody who survived the explosion is already traumatized. Let's just throw this experience into. For instance, one woman, Mary Nahili, showed up at the school on December 15th to look for her four nieces and nephews. Oh, All boy. siblings, who all died in the blast. She was led around the harshly lit, cold basement till she found all of them. James Fraser, age seven. Colin Fraser, age six. Margaret Fraser, age four, and Winifred Fraser, toddler. Unfortunately, around a quarter of the Halifax explosion victims were children. These four kids had lived at 1406 Barrington Street, which is a household right near the blast center. It was one of the hardest hit households in the entire city. Fourteen people who lived in that house were killed, including the four siblings whose father had been away at war. I could not find out what happened to their mother. It appeared that they were boarding with another family. Oh, boy. There's actually an interactive map you can see. Somebody made an interactive Halifax explosion death map. That is fun. It will show you where the deceased lived, and the closer you get to the blast site, the higher the death toll per house. There were houses on Barrington and Richmond streets that lost, like, ten-plus people. On Veith Street, one of the streets closest to the explosion site, 95% of the people who lived on Veith Street died on the day of the explosion. Oh, fuck. Can you imagine being this, the person who, like, just went out on a trip to the bakery and then you come home and your entire fucking family's dead? Yeah, there's lots of stories like that. Or even, like, you just live. Like, you just survived somehow. There was one especially tragic story where there was one house somewhere on somewhere in the area right near the blast zone where a woman lost her ten children and husband. She was pregnant at the time and sh- the baby was fine. So it was just, like, one pregnant woman and her unborn child were the only survivors of a 12-person household. They found her, like, pinned under rubble in the basement. Everybody died in an instant. One minute you have ten children and a husband, and the next minute 
everyone's dead. It's just you. That's one of the biggest tragedies on Veith Street was the destruction of the Halifax Protestant Orphanage. When they heard all the commotion at the harbor, the matron in charge of the orphanage assumed that an attack was incoming, and she rushed everyone down into the basement for safety, assuming that they were waiting for like an all-clear siren to go. Instead, the orphanage collapsed on top of them, killing 24 children between the ages of 3 and 13, along with three of their caretakers. Six children and one staff member survived. The children who died are honored by the local Anglican church every year because they do not have descendants or family to remember them. They've got a little garden devoted to them. The place has actually been rebuilt. It's not an orphanage anymore. It's called Veith House. It's now a non-profit for impoverished families. But the basement is reportedly haunted by a ghost nun, which is kind of fun. It's better that it's like a non-profit, because if it would have been like a Chuck E. Cheese, I would have been a little upset. <laughs> I would have thrown some goddamn hands. <laughs> uh, no, it was not turned into a Chuck E. Cheese. No gurning mass mascots over the bodies of the dead children. <laughs> no, it, it still helps impoverished children. That's still true. Although, I would love the idea of just a haunted ball pit. <laughs> just a ghost nun in the ball pit. Scowling at you for running. Honestly, still not the most horrifying thing you can find in a ball pit. I mean, less upsetting than any something else you can find, yeah. <laughs> Just a festival of used band-aids down there. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> but, you know, people always used to, like, tell stories about, like, like oh, like, what if you found, like, like a, a needle in there? I'm like, what if you just found a child? Just a sticky fucking child. <laughs> <laughs> the worst thing in a ball pit. Children. <laughs> The north end of Halifax was so unbelievably devastated, though, that it took them a very long time to find all the victims, to the point that the final body of a Halifax victim was located in 1919, two years after it happened. Ooh! Uh-oh. Can't imagine that was in good shape. No. <laughs> it's, it's, it's gone off. Huh, that's where Steve went. <laughs> Found him. Hide and seek champion. By noon on the day of the explosion, which is just three hours after it happened, the lieutenant governor of Nova Scotia, which is like the queen's ceremonial representative in Nova Scotia, that's not an actual like elected official. They, they do have some authority, but they're not elected. They're here to represent Queen Lizzie. The authorities mostly pretend. Like, they have th- authority in theory, but they don't actually do anything. No. Also, it was a king at that time. Queen Elizabeth is old, but she's not quite that old. Representative of the king, thank you. The granddaddy of Liz. But he banded together with some of Halifax's most prominent citizens to form the Halifax Relief Commission. So this was a committee that organized the relief effort for Halifax and Dartmouth. They were the ones who were figuring out how to distribute medical supplies, staff, get transportation sorted out, supply food and shelter to the survivors, and pay the medical or funeral expenses for explosion victims. They found the money to do that. And when the immediate aftermath was dealt with, they also sorted out financial assistance and pensions for survivors who were badly affected by the explosion. Many people lost everything in the explosion. I like that as a consistent Canadian political instinct. There's been a crisis first. A commission. (laughs) (laughs) We must form a committee. (laughs) I understand that there are bleeding victims outside the doors, but we must follow Robert's rules. Yeah, anything bad happens in Canada. We've got a committee that's got its own letterhead within three hours. (laughs) (laughs) The first step. Due process is a must. 
It's fascinating to read about this committee, though, because a lot of people were on Halifax explosion pensions for a very long time after the explosion. Because this was a time before, like, insurance was a real big thing. I read the story of one family that actually had to leave Nova Scotia permanently. They had been music teachers, and so when the explosion happened, all of their instruments were blown up, and there was just no replacing them. Um... And the husbands had been dock workers or something that were out of work. But it was really interesting because they applied for assistance, for relief. And the husband's employer wrote a letter to the Halifax Explosion Commission saying that, like, he was a shiftless layabout. Like, he's lazy and he's terrible. And they they cut off his funds for this. Like, we have... Oh, my gosh. I know. I know. The family almost, like, starved to death. Yeah, you think you have a bad boss. Jeez. Yeah, they had to fight this for, like, months. The man was, like, so incredibly disabled by the explosion that he couldn't work, but the boss wrote letters to be like, he's definitely faking, he's always been lazy. And it took them, like, months and multiple notices from doctors to fight this. What do you have to gain? I have no idea. This guy was just pissed and out to get this. Shiftless, disabled layabout. Fuck this one guy in particular. But people had to fight to get their pensions. People would get cut off of financial assistance. So many people just left Nova Scotia. They're... Their stores were gone. Their businesses were destroyed. The tools and things that they used to make a living were just blown up in the explosion. And for some people, there was no replacing them. They just, fuck it. We're going to Ontario. <laughs> like, we're leaving. We're heading for Scarborough, the the land of plenty promised to us. I don't think anyone's ever described Scarborough, Ontario, as the <laughs> land of plenty. <laughs> the land of plenty of something, anyway. But the Halifax Relief Commission also organized the rebuilding of Halifax. And they had so much to do that this committee operated until 1976. Oh my gosh. Nine years. It took a really long time to recover from the explosion. Holy crap. So the, 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 the Halifax Explosion Recovery Committee overlapped with the existence of the Beatles? Yes, correct. <laughs> it lasted through, like, World War II. It lasted through the 60s. Most it of lasted the Cold through War. Woodstock. It saw the moon landing. Like, yeah, it went through <laughs> a lot. Unfortunately, the aftermath of the explosion was made a lot worse than it had to be by the weather. So, apparently, God was not finished shitting on Halifax in December of 1917 because a monster blizzard hit the city the next day. 40 centimeters of snow fell in one day, the day after the explosion. That is 16 inches of snow. With wind gusts up to 90 kilometers an hour. God was angered by the existence of fiddles. Sodom and Gomorrah did not get smited quite this hard in the Bible. <laughs> like, what did Halifax do? <sighs> I just, so much donair meat. I don't know. Maybe, maybe God has a particular soft spot for cod. I have no idea. We didn't have donairs in 1917. We had to wait for the uh, crisis in Lebanon. The Maritimes took in like a shitload of Lebanese refugees and we let them stay for their delicious, delicious food. And now Canadian maritime food is like indistinguishable from Lebanese food. A lot of like very traditional Canadian food is just Lebanese food that has mayonnaise on it. It's... That's, that's, that's Canadian cuisine in general. It's just ex-immigrant <laughs> food, but with mayo. <laughs> Put some cheese on there, we're good to go. 
But the day after the Halifax explosion, temperatures dropped to minus 15 degrees Celsius with the wind chill. Between this and the snow, it made search and rescue incredibly difficult. Relief trains on their way into the city had to stop as there was too much snow on the tracks to continue, and the city was more or less on its own. Everyone was encouraged to get the fuck out of the city, basically, if they could, but not everyone had a place to go. Some people just ended up huddling together in damaged buildings or in tents, just trying to survive the cold. A church-run home for infants in the North End, known now as the Chibucto Family Center, but called the Home of the Guardian Angel at the time. Oh. It was a place, literally, for single mothers to drop off their out-of-wedlock shame babies to be adopted. <laughs> literally. Literally. was like a home for unwed mothers. Take a baby, leave a baby. <laughs> Pretty much. It was just basically like a baby drop-off where they would be cared for by the nuns. It was almost entirely destroyed in the explosion and subsequent blizzard, leaving 72 infants and nuns just huddled together in one room for heat until the place could be repaired. There was actually a, a convent and a Bible school in North Halifax, and those were also largely destroyed. Most of the children in the Bible school survived, although there were quite a few casualties, and I think a lot of the nuns made it through. There was a whole document that I found that somebody had compiled that was just first-hand accounts of the explosion written by nuns. They had a hard go of it, particularly the home of the guardian angel. Save the nuns, I guess. For just a dollar a day, you too can sponsor a nun. <laughs> My favorite. Uh, mostly <laughs> Protestant nuns in Halifax, which is like a fun thing. Yeah. Oh yeah, that is that is odd. Oh, but like, can you Anglicans. imagine like just like world vision commercials but with nuns <laughs> just sad-eyed nuns just sad-eyed nuns sitting there all listless playing with a rosary <laughs> yeah halifax has a lot of protestant nuns which are like a mm. very novel thing only that's the a very anglican nuns. thing it's a very only anglicans have nuns. you're never gonna see like a baptist nun that's not a thing we had catholic nuns too I think the convent may have been Catholic. I'm actually not sure. But there's a whole document that's just like the experiences of nuns, which is fascinating. They took it in stride, the old girls, you know? Mm. But gross and sad alert, a lot of explosion survivors actually died from exposure while waiting for rescue. So in the days following the blizzard, rescue workers reported numerous instances of finding dead children huddled together in the snow of the devastated area, having frozen to death. Oof. It's like hanged Christian Anderson all over again. It was not a good time. One of the first and most significant relief efforts to arrive after the blizzard was from Boston. The Boston Red Cross had dispatched a relief train at 10 p.m. on December 6th after learning about the explosion via telegram, but because of the snow, they did not arrive in Halifax until the morning of December 8th. This train brought supplies and medical staff to relieve the existing Halifax medical staff, most of whom had worked 48 hours straight after the explosion, not stopping to rest until the train from Boston had arrived. Canada had a Red Cross at the time, like the Canadian Red Cross had already been created, but they had never actually responded to a major disaster before and had no experience doing it, which was a problem. Oof. Yeah, because this is a place where experience really is important. <laughs> the American Red Cross had already responded to several major incidents, like the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, and they came in on the Boston train and taught the Canadian Red Cross how to coordinate and carry out a large-scale disaster response. Not a job you really want to learn as you go, but, you know, when you have limited other options, you do what you can. To this day, though, the Canadian and American Red Cross have a very close working relationship. The Canadian Red Cross actually responded to Hurricane Sandy and Hurricane Matthew, and the American Red Cross responded to the Fort McMurray Fire and the BC Wildfires. 
To thank the people of Boston for their help after the Halifax explosion, Nova Scotia actually sends them a Christmas tree every year as a gift. The official city Christmas tree displayed on the Boston Common is a gift from Halifax, from Nova Scotia as a whole. There's rules about these things. The trees have to be 40 to 50 feet high and they must be attractive. That's in the rules. <laughs> Gonna set him a sexy tree for saving us. Yeah, they can't come from a tree farm. There's like a tree scout who just like scouts trees in Nova Scotia and it's considered an incredible honor to have your tree selected to be the Boston Christmas tree. Like people will fight over this. They're gonna cut you. <laughs> <laughs> it's our term to give the Bostonians a tree. Yeah, they come from all over the province. They just, they pick the nicest trees every year. That's nice. But the Boston medical teams weren't the only medical professionals to come in from out of town. And this is a full gross and sad alert. This is, this is very gross. If you're eating, don't. If you're eating, how have you made it this far? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, at this point, you're just a goat with headphones on, so carry on, <laughs> I guess. As we already mentioned, many of the 6,000 people who were severely injured in the explosion did not make a full recovery. Many actually had disabilities or medical complications for the rest of their lives. And one of the most common disabilities, somewhat unexpectedly, was blindness. This is like the one nightmare detail I learned in my childhood. So, fun stuff. This is a haunting detail about the explosion. Also incredibly gross. The ship had burned for almost 20 minutes, and a ship on fire was basically the best entertainment you could get in 1917 Halifax. So, hundreds of people stood and watched the ship burning at their windows. And when the ship exploded, those windows shattered inward, filling people's eyes with glass. Oof. As you can probably imagine, getting an eye full of glass is generally considered not good by most optometrists. Two out of ten. <laughs> Nine out of ten optometrists agree. Don't fill your eyes with glass. <laughs> what does this tenth optometrist say? Ah! My eyes! <laughs> oh, that's actually good. That's good. <laughs> oh, that's a joke a six-year-old would come up with, but it's excellent. <laughs> Dr. George Cox, an eye specialist from New Glasgow, a very depressing city around 150 kilometers away from here. New Glasgow is consistently voted Canada's worst place to live, so it's not just me shitting on it. But Dr. George Cox realized after the explosion that he was probably needed in Halifax, so he got on the next train into the city, and when it had to stop at the edge of town because of rubble and snow on the tracks, he just got off and walked through the deep snow. Good on you, man. When he arrived at Camp Hill Hospital, he found dozens of people waiting there with debris in their eyes. Some had glass, brick, or bits of pottery in there, while other people just straight up had nails sticking out of their eyes. Even today, there's not really much we can do for you if you end up with an eye full of glass shards. So in 1917, there really weren't a lot of options. Dr. Cox worked for 40 hours at a time, just removing eyes. He would knock Ugh. patients out with chloroform and remove damaged eyes until he had a literal bucket full of eyes at his feet. Oh, Yeah, I told you. You were warned. You were so fucking warned. You've been If you dull. are still eating, that is not my fault. Bucket of eyes. If you get a big bucket of, I don't know, Linder truffles in front of you, I am sorry, but this is on you. <laughs> <laughs> If you're eating peeled grapes, you picked a bad time. <laughs> if you're helping yourself to some bubba tea, that's... <laughs> mm, chunky. <laughs> yep. 
I mean, some people, it wasn't even a lot of effort. Apparently quite a few people had eyes literally hanging out of their sockets, resting on their cheeks. You just sort of pick them up rather than pull them out. After 40 hours of removing eyes, he shooed everyone out of the room, shut the door, and had a three-hour power nap, and then got up for 40 more hours of eye removals. Oh, Gotta fill that other bucket. <laughs> nap and rally. God, hundreds of people lost one eye, dozens of people lost both. I would have needed a little bit more than a nap, to be honest. Yeah, I don't know that I could, like, go back to plucking eyes out after three hours yeah, of sleep. I, I, I probably spent about three <laughs> hours just hyperventilating. <laughs> I imagine that a lot of these doctors and nurses, like, eventually just slept for a week straight when this has all kind of died down. Oh, they would have had, like, a full-on, like, meth nap. God, holy shit, right? <laughs> I, like, work a full- I work, like, a 40-hour work week, which is, like, soft by historical standards. And by Friday, I'm just like, well, time to sleep forever. death embrace me but even many of the people who didn't lose eyes lost their vision like there's only so much glass the human eyeball can accommodate i actually visited halifax in high school and had a guide who was in his 90s and had grown up in the immediate aftermath of the halifax explosion and he said the whole time he was growing up it was not unusual to see people who had purple spots in their eyes which is apparently glass and in their skin And he's like, it wasn't super unusual to see somebody scratch at their face and eventually work a piece of glass out of their skin. Like, oh, good. Oh, like sci-fi freckles, except they're actually glass. It's glass. Glass is a fairly inert substance, so your skin will just grow over it. But after time, your body will be like, get get this out of here. What is this? (laughs) So he's like, yeah, every now and then people would have, like, remove pieces of glass from their own eyes because it would, like, work its way out of the eye. So, you know. I've told you that my, my grandmother was in a uh, an accident that left her with some bullet shrapnel in. And uh, yes. eventually, because like often doctors don't want to remove that kind of stuff. It's, it's dangerous to move it and they'll only really opt for surgery if it's near something dangerous. But eventually one of the shrapnel bits started working its way out of her ass. And uh, she had my mom take it out with some pliers. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> my mom had a very interesting childhood that she mostly can't remember. <laughs> Mm, that's always a prominent sign. That's that's always good. Just block that shit out, I guess. Uh, we'll just erase that part of the tape. Just gonna, mm, yeah, should blank that right the fuck out. Blindness actually was way more common after World War One, not only due to the Halifax explosion, but also due to World War One. I think that's when the popularization of the white cane came into effect. Yeah, when everything was said and done, one in 50 Haligonians was legally blind. That is 2% of the population. It doesn't sound like a lot, but there's no cities now that even approach that level of blindness. That's one in every 50 people, that's crazy. And this is in an age with no assistive technology. Like, seriously, nothing. There wasn't even guide dogs for the blind back then. The first guide dogs would not exist until the 1930s. And the influx of people with serious eye damage brought about a lot of changes. For starters, doctors learned a lot about caring for people who had long-term eye injuries as a result of the explosion, which greatly improved medical care for people with similar injuries in the future. So if you get glass in your eyes today and the doctor manages to save your eye, you probably have a Halifax explosion survivor to thank for that. The explosion also led to the foundation of the Canadian National Institute for the Blind, an organization that provides support and information for vision-impaired people and their loved ones to this day. 
Halifax became like an international center of care for blind people. People would come from all over to get care and education for blind people. There was a need. <laughs> <laughs> there was a demand. If you blind them, they will come. Yeah, I, there was just a huge influx. 1917 was a bad year for eyeballs. Everybody was coming back with these eye injuries from World War One, and then you had like a thousand people living in Halifax who were blind. All of a sudden. Who had never been blind and needed to adjust. Be, adjusting to being blind when you're an adult is a lot harder than if you lose your sight as a child. You have way more time to cope and your brain's a lot more plastic. Yeah, your brain is not good at adjusting when you get older. The Canadian National Institute for the Blind, still around, still doing that kind of work, but it got its start in the shitty events of 1917. But to this day, if you're ever in Halifax, you will notice immediately that we have the loudest fucking crosswalk signals you've ever heard. Deafening. Startling to local birds. Like, I grew up in St. Albert, which is like this pretty idyllic suburb on the outskirts of Edmonton. And like, if you press the button to get across the street, like we had blind signals. So there'd be this like pleasant little bird chirp. Not a lot of cities don't have like an audio signal to cross the street. New York, you just get carried on by like the waves of people and indifference. <laughs> just, I think even the blind jaywalk in New York, nobody gives a fuck. Um, but in Halifax, they're loud as fuck. They play a song. When you're when it's safe to cross the road, they go do 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 do. Like it's so loud, it's unbelievably loud, and it's because so many people were blind. Uh, my favorite thing is when you see like a raven or a crow imitating the crosswalk signal, and I'm like, you're gonna kill somebody. <laughs> oh, that crow's gonna kill us all. <laughs> Corvids are terrifying. They're, sm they're smart, Janelle. They might be doing it on purpose. They're way too smart. They're trying to trick blind people into walking into traffic. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't put it past them I watched a crow get into an animal proof garbage can and it was one of the most terrifying things I've ever seen <laughs> it like figured out how to squeeze the handle and like open the thing absolutely terrifying I for one welcome our new crow overlords <laughs> those actually weren't the only advancements in medical science that came about because of the explosion one of the doctors who came up from the United States to help care for victims was a surgeon named Dr. William Ladd Many, many, many of the severely injured victims of the explosion were children, because children were more likely to have pressed their faces against windows to watch the explosion, which was oh, like a no. leading... If your face was smooshed against glass when the explosion happened, you were not in good shape after it happened. But children were more likely to be watching the explosion. That day, there's quite a few stories of children who were either homesick or home in quarantine, it was common practice at the time that if one kid had the measles or chicken pox, that all the kids would stay home from school. So lots of kids who were home from school that day, like, went down to the docks to watch the explosion. And kids are basically made out of rubber. So they hit the ground and bounced. They were in pretty rough shape. Dr. Ladd was horrified when he was working on patients to realize that there was just really no surgical standards for treating children. They didn't design surgeries on children. They didn't study children for the first medical textbooks. Surgeries had been designed for adults with the assumption that kids are just tiny adults, which they are not. They, absolutely not. They don't even have the same number of bones. They do not. No. Children do not have enough bones. And then they have too many bones. Don't trust children. They have too many, too many bones. <laughs> I took anthropology classes all through university. My minor was like biological anthropology. So I took a lot of classes where you just got to, like, play with human remains because I'm a horrifying person. Babies don't have kneecaps. No, the first time I ever got to handle a baby skeleton, I was horrified. Those fuckers have no bones. Babies don't have, like, knees. It's awful. <laughs> 
Most of a baby's skeleton is made out of cartilage. Yeah, so you can squeeze them out. Yeah, they're real squishy and real flexible, but the problem is, is that when you have baby skeletons, there's just not much to them. They're just a big, scary skull. <laughs> <laughs> like an alien. Do not recommend. Their cartilage ossifies throughout childhood, and then at one point you have lots and lots of bones, and then your bones slowly fuse together. So, don't trust children. They have the incorrect number of bones. (laughs) (laughs) This is the lesson here. A lesson brought to you by Fat Friend and Fabulous. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so Dr. Ladd's experiences operating on severely injured children in the Halifax explosion pretty much fucked him up for life. He was apparently deeply traumatized and messed up about this. And he took meticulous notes about his experiences and the things that he had done to try to help these children. And when he returned to the United States, he used his notes and his newfound passion to found the modern field of pediatric surgery. This is a man who stays up all night washing his hands. It is. Yeah, no, it very much is. He was, like, so moved by this experience that he created an entire medical field. So, you know, interesting. We've covered a lot of human tragedy already, but there's actually a few other stories of explosion victims that should be told that typically get left out of retellings of the Halifax explosion. So one group that are often left out are the residents of Tufts Cove. Halifax has been home to the Mi'kmaq people for generations, long before Halifax existed. And in 1917, at least 17 Mi'kmaq families were living in a village in what is called Tufts Cove, in the north end of Dartmouth, right in the edge of the Narrows. The area is called Kipakik by the Mi'kmaq, which means Narrows. (laughs) Uh, If there's one thing that brings us together, it's creativity. The Maritimes are like one of the few places in Canada that like for the most part kept Mi'kmaq names like we really didn't rename a lot of places my brother lives in Anaganish which has been called Anaganish for like thousands of years we have a provincial park called Kuchimikwak and I you can't spell it <laughs> however you think that word is spelled you are wrong you are incorrect <laughs> incorrect but a lot of place names in the Maritimes are either just the original name or direct translation so yeah Kipikek is just the Narrows the village that they lived in was called Masquakati Melpec, which means Birch Bark Cove, but was often called Turtle Grove by other people. No idea why. But this was an ideal location for the Mi'kmaq community because it was easily accessible by canoe from the nearby waterways, and it was close enough to railways and major markets that it was easy for families to sell handmade goods. Some of the families living in this community were poor, but others were actually quite well off. The village was on the verge of being relocated when the blast struck. Nearby property owners wanted the settlement moved off the land because racism <laughs> and had been pressuring the federal government to evict them because racism. The government agreed to do this because again because racism. <laughs> and the Department of Indian Affairs had just notified the community that they were going to be resettled on the shores of nearby Albro Lake. I say was because the village was completely wiped off the map in the explosion. If only the racism had been a little faster. I mean, Albro Lake was completely out of the blast zone. It was fine. Dartmouth as a whole was, like, less affected. Only about 100 people on the Dartmouth side died. Just because the explosion happened more towards the Halifax side. But Tufts Grove got the short end of the stick. Many residents were killed or seriously injured by the blast, and others died when the tsunami hit the village, sweeping a lot of it away. Parents had to watch their kids be swept out to sea right in front of them. 
and the village was never rebuilt. The survivors were just resettled in surrounding reservations, and the stories of Mi'kmaq explosion victims are often forgotten when the explosion is discussed. There are, however, some experiences of the Turtle Grove residents that still exist in oral tradition and in written Mi'kmaq history. One survivor, Rachel Cope, was between 10 and 16 at the time of the explosion. The oral history says 10, but her death certificate says that she would have been 16 when it happened. Close! (laughs) Close enough. She was on her way to the Indian school when the explosion happened. She said, For an instant the town of Richmond seemed to shimmer like a reflection in a still pond, and then everything went black. She was found unconscious and near death after the explosion. She'd been discovered by her father's cousins, who placed her on a door they found that had been blown off a building. They then covered her in burlap sacks to keep her warm. A priest came by with his sister, bringing a cartload of blankets for victims, and he thought that she was so likely to die that he actually performed last rites for her. She says that she has no awareness of any of this. In the oral history, she says, and I quote, Not realizing I was expected to die, I failed to live up to expectations (laughs) and kept on being. Atta girl. I like her spunk. A glorious failure. She came to, still wrapped in blankets on the door, and she said that a random woman was singing to her in Gaelic and feeding her soup until she lost consciousness again. (laughs) Honestly, one of the most terrifying ways that you can wake up. Just a random stranger singing in Gaelic and feeding you soup. I'm pretty sure that's what happens before the fairies eat you. (laughs) So there there was a lot of Gaelic speakers in Halifax at one point. This This is New Scotland, after all. That, that is the reason for the pirate accents. <laughs> yeah, it's not a pirate accent, it's a bastardized Scottish accent. Uh, I'm sure I'll have one eventually, so when I start, like, signing onto this podcast being like, I'm still Janelle, then you'll know. It's gotten to me. Lord I'm in Jesus, but I am here from Halifax, it's Janelle Como. <laughs> <laughs> My mother says it all the time, Lord Tunner and Jesus, but no, I have no fucking idea what that means. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's self-evident, Janelle. <laughs> We do a lot of religious swearing in, in Eastern Canada. Very much so. In fact, you can kind of tell what a society considers sacred or taboo based on their swearing. Anglophones are far more leery of sex and sexuality than a lot of cultures, which is why so much of it is fornication or sex organ based. Whereas in French, it's just religion. Just religion. Quebec is extremely religious, and therefore most of the most intense swears have a religious basis, including Chalice and Tabernacle. Very difficult to explain to Quebec to Americans, because it's a deeply, deeply religious place, but also you can have tits on TV at three in the afternoon and nobody cares. No one gives a shit. (laughs) (laughs) We will show softcore porn to children and nobody cares. You can drink at like six. (laughs) <laughs> both pm and the age <laughs> yeah oh yeah, yeah i i was in montreal at 19 i'm a very baby-faced person so i did not look like the legal drinking age in montreal and at 19 you barely look like you should ID. be unaccompanied on a bus <laughs> i did i didn't look like an adult in any way shape or form and i went into some bar in montreal and i was like trying to get my id out and the guy who was serving us was just like, oh no, he's like, in Quebec, drinking age is just a suggestion. I was like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> drinking age is suggestion. I was like, oh, okay, all right. I like it here. <laughs> this is a great place. That's not even a nod and a wink. That's just straight up telling me, like, I don't care that you're 16. Don't bother showing me your fake ID. Get over here. <laughs> yeah, get over here. Just drink. Mm-hmm. Nobody cares. <laughs> scotch, scotch, scotch. <laughs> 
but yeah, that's that's got to be the worst way to wake up. Just a, just a, not the worst way to wake up, but the weirdest way to wake up. You're on a door and a Gaelic woman is feeding you soup. <laughs> she actually lost consciousness again at that point, and when she regained consciousness a second time, she was still on the door, but this time she was being carried by the cousins who'd found her. The snowstorm was raging, and her father's cousins carried her to Windsor Junction through a blizzard for 20 kilometers, never stopping to rest. She actually survived the explosion and lived to old age. Incredibly, she didn't break any bones even in the explosion. She, she made a full recovery. The rest of her family was not so lucky. Her 12-year-old brother and 14-year-old cousin were killed the day of the explosion, and her 3-year-old brother died of his injuries three months later. Her mother and the rest of her siblings were badly burned and wounded by falling shrapnel. And although the family recovered from their burns, her two-year-old sister and her mother died from flu within the year. She said, quote, There wasn't anybody helping them. I feel the horror and helplessness. It just goes to the core of me. Now I'm just so sad here because I can visualize the detail of what happened. How many people were screaming, children in the water. It was just such a trauma and it happened so fast. Canadian official records list nine Mi'kmaq victims, but the Mi'kmaq have records of at least 28 confirmed victims. So, five that we bothered counting. Yeah, there's nine we bothered counting. The rest, nah. Because racism. There's also the tragic story of the community of Africville. And, oh, I no. mean, spoiler alert, this is also rooted in racism. See, I, uh, I already know what Africville is, so I'm so upset. <laughs> so upset. Halifax has had black residents for longer than it's been a city. It's, it's had black residents from the very beginning. But the black population boomed during the late 18th century and the early 19th century. Many escaped slaves traveling to freedom on the Underground Railroad were eventually brought to Canada, specifically Nova Scotia, to escape slavery. And then, after the War of 1812, the British declared that any Americans who wished to defect and declare their loyalty to the crown could come over to their side and either serve in the British military or settle in a British colony. Black slaves were offered their freedom if they would agree to defect, and the British kept their promise. Around 3,000 former slaves, mostly from Virginia and the surrounding area, were brought to Nova Scotia on British naval ships and chartered boats as free black loyalists. They were given land grants and supplies in exchange for settling what was effectively wilderness, or living in, in less developed parts of major cities. Fun fact, Thomas Jefferson was fucking furious I about bet this. he was. Piece of Not shit. happy about this at all, and he demanded they be returned from Canada. The British said no. <laughs> you cannot have them back. Absolutely not. <laughs> nope, ours now. You'll stick your penis in them, you fuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, like, called them, like, deserters, like, believes that they should be brought back. Britain was like, no. <laughs> no. Absolutely ours not. Ours now. We're keeping them. They're ours. We might be racist, but these are our blacks. <laughs> Yeah, these are our... Bl yeah, still racist. I mean... Ooh, like, better than slavery, but that's such a low bar. It you really is. You don't get is. credit for being better than slavery. Canada was considered to be a relatively safe place for escaped slaves and black loyalists compared to the northern U.S. It was a lot easier to legally recapture them in the northern states. Leaving the country made it significantly more difficult to do that. People still did try. People put out ads for, like, former slaves in Nova Scotia, rewards were offered, but it was significantly more expensive. And part of the issue was that Canadian judges were largely very skeptical of slavery and would just do anything to fuck you over in terms of your rights. Yeah, Canada was not interested in returning escaped slaves. Not interested in being kind to them, no. but also not interested in returning them. 
Canada was not a racial utopia by any stretch of the imagination. It's still not. For starters, Canada absolutely had slaves. Mm -hmm. That's something that we don't like to talk about. We shouldn't get to wriggle out of that part of our history. We just had fewer of them because gang labor was not as financially viable in Canada. So most slaves in Canada were small numbers of domestic servants. We made our money in the fur trade. There's only, you, you don't benefit from having large amounts of people to do that. Yeah, we well, can't exactly grow tobacco along along the banks of the <laughs> of the Saint Laurent. No, we have a very harsh climate. Canada didn't participate in transatlantic black slavery. No shipments of chattel slaves were ever brought to Canada from Africa. The majority of people in Canada who were enslaved were indigenous. They were captured from the local indigenous populations. Although there were some black slaves in Canada brought up from the U.S. Upper Canada, which is roughly Ontario, abolished the practice of slavery in 1793, and slavery was banned across the British Empire in 1834. Although by the time that came down, Canada wasn't really participating in it in any meaningful way. Nah. It, it's easy to give up slavery when you barely have any left for perfectly reasonable economic, re economic causes. <laughs> yeah, mo most provinces had individually banned slavery before the British ban came down. And even before then, it wasn't viable to hold slaves, really, because you would constantly get undermined in the courts if you tried to hold on to them. You didn't get paid reparations for that. There, there was not very much patience in Canadian courts for this. So, yay, we get a sticker for the bare minimum. Life for resettled black loyalists was not easy. Black loyalists were given less land and fewer supplies than white loyalists. They also faced a great deal of racism, and many struggled with the cold climate. It's a bit of a jump from Virginia to, <laughs> to, to Canada. Yeah, it's, it's cold here. George Ramsey, the Earl of Dalhousie and Governor of Nova Scotia from 1916 to 1820, the person who Dalhousie University is named And definitely not the star of Hell's Kitchen. <laughs> not the star of Hell's Kitchen, George Ramsey. No, he's the namesake of Dalhousie University, and when he was done ruling Nova Scotia, and I can't believe this is true, he became the commander-in-chief of all of India, which seems like a bit of a step up. He was also adamantly pro-slavery, to the point that Dalhousie Awkward. University has cut ties with him. They no longer acknowledge him. And he very much objected to the black loyalists who settled in Halifax. In an attempt to get them out of Nova Scotia, he offered them free passage Ooh. back to the United States. They're a little tone-deaf. Or to Trinidad and Tobago, he was shocked to learn that none of them wanted to return to their masters. Huh. Weird. He'd been under the impression that they were going to take him up on this offer. It, the, the fact that that was in any way a sincere suggestion is baffling. <laughs> oh, 100% sincere. He couldn't force them to leave because they had their freedom. He's like, what if I shipped you back and I covered the cost? <laughs> yeah. Like, free bus ticket back to slavery? Who's in? Nobody. They also weren't real keen on going to Trinidad, because Trinidad also had a serious slavery issue. The, the Caribbean was not a great place for any of that. Like, at this point, I think it's, like, Haiti that's a free, completely. Only a handful of people took him up on the Trinidad offer. He then decided to offer passage back to Africa, which was a more popular suggestion. Around 1,200 people took him up on that offer, and the group that went from Nova Scotia to Africa founded the nation of Sierra Leone, which is a very interesting part of Canadian history. <laughs> that is weird. <laughs> Gotta admit. 
The nation of Sierra Leone was founded not by native people from the area, but by settlers who came to Africa via Nova Scotia. (laughs) Incredibly strange. Recursive colonialism. Yeah, honestly, weirdest colonialism by proxy ever. Sierra Leone has a lot of remnants of American culture and, and Southern American culture from the early 19th century and late 18th century because that's... That's who settled it. It was it was Americans, former Americans who who arrived there en route from Nova Scotia. Super interesting. If you ever have like an afternoon to kill, I highly encourage you to go down the rabbit hole that is the history of Sierra Leone and its connection to Nova Scotia. It's fascinating. In Halifax, though, the people who stayed, former slaves and black loyalists, some of them settled in a community called Africville, located on the south shore of the Bedford Basin. This was a small and very close-knit community of predominantly black residents. And a handful of white prostitutes. Fun fact. Yeah, there was... The police didn't really bother with Africville, so it attracted uh, a handful of terrible white people. (laughs) (laughs) Just the worst. But mostly it was just a very tight-knit, very religious community of black residents. Africville started out as a small rural community of 50 people and eventually grew into a self-sufficient, thriving village of around 400 people. They had their own school, several stores, their own post office, and a Baptist church that was the center of the community, the, the Seagate Baptist Church. For the very beginning, though, the community faced racism, discrimination, and hostility from other Haligonians. So despite the fact that Africville residents paid the same municipal taxes as other residents, and I mean, several of them were quite well-to-do, Africville received zero basic services from the city. They had repeatedly requested that the city provide them with the same services that other Haligonians got, namely basic sewage, clean water, and garbage removal. They were not exactly asking for the moon here. <laughs> but Africville was repeatedly ignored. Shocker. So they didn't- they, they had businesses, they had community, they had a post office, they did not have garbage pickup. That's too much, apparently. We just want to be able to poop in peace. I mean, what the city did do was they went out of their way to build undesirable things in the area. Mm. At one point, Africville was the home of Halifax's infectious disease hospital, its prison, and the city dump. (laughs) That's kind of the consequences of uh, not in my backyard. It always ends up in somebody's backyard, and usually somebody with an excess of melanin. It's because of racism. Yeah, like apparently that's been an issue with COVID deaths. Black people in the United States and uh, elsewhere, presumably, were more likely to die if they caught it because they were more likely to have pre-existing conditions due to environmental pollution in the places they tended to live. Being poor is incredibly hard on your health, and black people are more likely to live in low-income areas, they're more likely to live in food deserts where they don't have uh, access to fresh food. Just the list goes on and on. Being poor sucks. (laughs) But when the explosion hit in 1917, the community of Africville actually avoided the worst of the destruction just because of a quirk of geography. There's a natural rise in the land between them and where the explosion went off, and that shielded the community from the worst of the blast. But they still lost five people as well as a visiting Mi'kmaq person, and their homes and businesses were damaged by the shrapnel and fire. Halifax refused to provide aid, even basic firefighting. They had to fight the fires in their community on their own with no municipal water line. The city had never installed water for them. And as a result, their structures received a lot more damage than they otherwise would have. And when Halifax was being rebuilt, very little relief money and absolutely no reconstruction effort went into Africville. They were left on their own to rebuild their community with limited resources. 
The community never really recovered from the explosion. Without having access to the relief they needed, they continued to struggle. Racism continued, and the neighborhood was eventually declared an official slum. An official slum? Is that like being Twitter verified? It is being Twitter verified as a shitty place to live, which is super <laughs> unfortunate. The dump was like part of the reason it was considered a slum. It's like, you fucking put that there. <laughs> it's like your roommate coming in and it's like, this place is a mess. It's your mess! <laughs> you did this! <laughs> yeah, more or less. They refused to give them even basic services and then complained that the neighborhood was unlivable. Funny how that works. Hmm. Fascinating. If only somebody could do something about this. If only someone with the power. In 1964, the decision was made to relocate the remaining residents of Africville and raise the community to the ground. Huh. Yeah, harsh. Incredibly harsh. What was the last time you heard of a city just deciding to bulldoze a neighborhood? Not a very common occurrence. Residents who could prove that they owned the lots they live on were paid for the value of the house. But a lot of residents didn't have paperwork to prove they owned their homes. They'd simply lived there for generations. So if you couldn't prove you owned your house, you got 500 bucks. City garbage trucks were used to move the remaining residents to various housing throughout the city and surrounding communities. Garbage trucks? Really? City garbage trucks. I'm not even kidding. They used garbage trucks. They didn't look like modern garbage trucks. It was like the city pickup truck, but... Still, that's what the trucks were usually used for. Really? You can find pictures of them moving the last resident of Africville out in a garbage truck, and they just- It's just a weird tone. <laughs> yeah, they brought her into the city. She had no- A lot of them had no idea where they were going. They were just like, alright, get in the truck, we're taking you to your new home. And they would just be dumped off in, like, social services housing in the city. Oh boy. So, they took a thriving, self-sufficient community with its own economy- didn't give it the tools it needed to recover from disaster, and then just scattered them into the city with no community and no supports to start a multi-generational cycle of dependence. Whee! The city issued an apology and a settlement in 1910, which went to rebuilding a replica of the Seagate Baptist Church, which is now the Africville Museum. Former residents and their descendants are actually still in court right now, fighting for individual compensation. Interestingly, one of the things that did survive the explosion was the SS Emo. Huh! The boat that started it all. Yeah. The tsunami beached the ship You on... bastard! I know! The tsunami beached- You Norwegian bitch! <laughs> Do you just hate Norwegians? No, I just hate Emo. Okay, just fuck that boat in particular. Fuck this boat in particular! Well, it, it did meet its end, you'll be happy to know. The tsunami beached the ship on the Dartmouth shore of the Halifax Harbor with severe external damage. Seven crew members were killed in the explosion, including the captain and pilot. But the ship was repaired, and it was returned to full-time service in 1918. Huh. She was in operation for three more years until she was run aground in the Falkland Islands in 1921 and abandoned. Just left her. <laughs> she survived the Halifax explosion, but I guess she got a bit sandy. They beached her in the Falkland Islands and were like, eh, it seems like a lot of effort. <laughs> She's got a fucking wonky engine anyway. <laughs> Fuck it. Never liked her. Just some transverse thrusted husty. After the explosion, there was a ferocious legal battle to determine who was at fault for the Halifax explosion. Blame. We assigned blame. 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 Someone must be blamed. 
In the initial ruling, and this might be surprising to you if you listen to part one, it was determined that the crew of the emo was not at all at fault for the disaster in any way. They were found completely blameless, and the Mont Blanc was determined to be fully at fault for the accident. Really? Yes, to the point that the captain and pilot of the Mont Blanc were arrested, along with the chief examining officer of the Royal Canadian Navy, which was the person in charge of the harbor. You're under arrest for chestnut-flavored crimes. <laughs> also, the deaths of 2,000 people. Yes. Remember that the Mont Blanc had requested special protections and an escort ship because of its dangerous cargo, and the chief examining officer of the harbor had denied this request. So, even though the Mont Blanc had the right-of-way the entire time, they were on the correct side of the Narrows, and the emo was out of its lane... The Mont Blanc was still determined to be responsible because it was determined that they knew they were carrying dangerous cargo and the court felt it had been their responsibility to do whatever was necessary to avoid a collision. But they also did do whatever was necessary. It's just that the emo fucked it up. I know. I know. The fascinating thing about this is that it kind of feels like if you don't have dangerous cargo, you're just allowed to play bumper ships. Like, it's totally fine. It's only if you have explosives on board that this becomes, like, a criminal issue. Like, it's one of those things of, like, reasoning backwards from consequences. A hundred percent. Like, the fact that they were explosive is what turned this from an accident to a disaster. But realistically, they were following all the rules. And they're the yeah, ones who they acted had the rationally and try to mitigate the, the harms. Yeah, they had stayed on the correct side of the Narrows. They had signaled that the emo needed to get out of the way. They had tried to get out of the way. They did try to get out of the way. It was the emo who reversed engines. But this ruling was overturned on appeal by both the Supreme Court of Canada and the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council in London. And they also acquitted the three men. The appeals found that both ships were equally responsible for the collision, but that there wasn't enough evidence to hold any specific individual criminally responsible. I think there's also part of this that has to do with, like, who died. It's harder to point a finger at the crew of the the emo because so many of their leadership was vaporized. Yeah. Historians also believe that the initial ruling finding the Mont Blanc responsible was at least partially motivated by the overwhelmingly anti-French sentiment in Canada at the time. (laughs) Ah, racism. Comes back to bite us, doesn't it, Janelle? Always hated the French. People in Canada. Always. I know that, like, Americans love to make fun of Canadians for being French. They often assume that all Canadians speak French. No, most Canadians hate the French. (laughs) Yeah, like, the French traditionally have been an oppressed underclass. They hate their own French. They hate the European French. Fuck all French people. That's (laughs) the unofficial motto of Canada. (laughs) <laughs> je me souviens que, que je te déteste. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's more or less how it goes. Not a popular group. I, I think one of the weirdest things I realized a while back was that technically you and I are a constitutionally protected ethnocultural group in Canada. <laughs> yes, Acadians. Isn't that weird? <laughs> Well, you're Quebecois and I'm Acadian, but those are both protected groups. Yeah, those are both protected groups on a constitutional level. (laughs) Yes. 100%. (laughs) 
I'm also considered an endangered ethnic minority. So. And we're both white as shit. Both white as shit. Where where I uh, Acadians are a distinct ethnocultural group, but we're white as fuck mostly. You're like the uh, Appalachians of the sea. You can be a black Acadian if you marry That's into true. an Acadian family and have black kids. Your kids are Acadian as fuck. As long as they eat sugar pie and love the fiddle, they can be Acadian. <laughs> <laughs> certain connection between Acadian culture and Louisiana culture. Yeah, we're, we're all related. <laughs> we don't wrestle alligators or eat spicy food, but other than that, we're pretty much the same thing. We both speak bad French and are disliked by the other people in the area, so... They're much bigger, though. You, you'll both eat anything you find on the bottom of a river. <laughs> there's a lot more of them than there are of us. There's about a million Cajuns in the U.S., but there's only 90,000 Acadians left. My name dies with me, damn it. I'm not a person who should have children. <laughs> a largely unsuccessful genocide. <laughs> there was an attempt. There was an attempt. You tried. A for effort. Or F for effort? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the public also felt that the Mont Blanc was responsible for the damage, as the crew had rowed away from the ship instead of steering it out of the harbor or sinking it to minimize the damage. All but one crew member of the Mont Blanc survived the explosion. They were frequently referred to as cowards for abandoning ship. The thing is, though, is that the crew had no hope of safely sinking the Mont Blanc. It would have taken six hours to sink her. The crew believed that they had seconds to get away from the boat before it exploded. Yeah, like, they didn't even know it was going to last 20 minutes. No, they had no idea it would burn for 20 minutes. They literally thought it was going to explode within the minute. They knew how dangerous their cargo was. It's remarkable that it, it burned for as long as it did. They had no reason to believe they even had time to steer it out of the way. No, exactly. And I mean, they kind of didn't. It takes more than 20 minutes to get a boat clear. Halifax did eventually rebuild. That's why I'm recording this from a one-bedroom apartment, and not from beneath a pile of hundred-year-old wreckage in a dead zone. The explosion had more or less turned the North End into a blank slate, and the Halifax Relief Commission had total authority to rebuild it however they saw fit. They decided it was an opportunity to completely revamp and modernize the city, which had been considered outdated before the explosion. The land was resurveyed, streets were reorganized. The sewage and water system was considered out of date by 1917 standards. How bad is your sewer line? Does it clog if you look at it? How bad is that? That's gotta be bad. Mm, I'm sure the water was real tasty. <laughs> I bet it was bright green. Mmm... Just a healthy dose of lead. Just a, a chunky glass of water. <laughs> Ew. So they redid everything. They redrew the streets, most of the streets before the and after the explosion of the exact same. But they modified a few to kind of fit with the landscape. This is a very hilly place. So they decided to draw a lot of the streets diagonally across the, the hills instead of straight across. Most of the streets do still match up, though. Veith Street's still there. Barrington's still there. The town of Richmond is gone. That's It's just called the North End now. Everything was completely redesigned. All the homes built in the area were redesigned. Many of them were actually owned by the Halifax Commission directly and were leased out because the families who'd occupied the lot previously were just dead. So the commission took it over. Probably the most famous element of the redesign was the Hydrostone, which is now one of the most famous neighborhoods in Halifax and is a Canadian historical site. People were a little antsy about moving back into wooden houses after the explosion, so all the row houses in the hydrostone area that were rebuilt are made from large, fireproofed, crushed granite hydrostone blocks. They're really something to look at. 
Hmm. The neighborhood was designed to be affordable housing for the families who were struggling financially after the explosion. It's a cute little neighborhood. It's very walkable. It's very accessible. It has all these little row houses. And since it was designed to be affordable for the vulnerable, naturally, that means people have gentrified the absolute fucking shit out of it. It's to the rafters with yuppies and hippies. It is. Most of the old row houses have been divided into individual apartments, and it is now one of Halifax's most expensive neighborhoods. Of course. I bet they've got copper and that odd, almost gas-looking lighting. Oh yeah, they've got old gas lighting. You can get kombucha and hot yoga. Most of the families that move there after the explosion to recover have now been priced out of the area. Tale is all this time. Fun stuff. gentrification. Sponsored by Lululemon. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, if you look at pictures of the Hydrostone Halifax on Google Images, it will take you approximately four seconds to be like, oh yeah, that's a neighborhood that has been fucking gentrified to shit. Even if you saw a picture of it from like 30 years ago, you'd be like, you know what? Yuppies are coming. That's a neighborhood. <laughs> They're really going to do a The hipsters on are here. Someday when that is subdivided into one bedroom apartments, they are going to do a number on that place. It's too cute for them not to ruin it. Too trendy to live. But the first anniversary of the explosion was recognized in December 1918. And after that, nobody said a fucking word about it for 50 years. <laughs> At all. It was, it was not talked about. The anniversary was not recognized. They did nothing for it. There was no ceremonies. Once they kind of finished with funerals, which at one point were happening 30 to 40 funerals a day, Oof. they did the first anniversary. And after that, just nobody wanted to talk about it. It was such an intensely traumatic experience for people who lived through it that many survivors simply couldn't bear to speak about it. Many of us later generations of Eastern Canadians don't know much about our family's experiences in the explosion because those stories were not passed on. People did not tell their children what they had gone through in the explosion, and the stories died with them a lot of the time. Some of the only people who can really bear to speak about it are people who survived it as children. So even a lot of the first-hand accounts that were written about the explosion were written by people who were very young at the time it happened. It was only in 1985, after most adult survivors of the explosion were dead, that a memorial bell tower was built in Fort Needham Park, which is a little park overlooking the site where the explosion happened. The original ten bells on the tower had been donated by Barbara Orr, a survivor of the explosion in memory of her family. She'd been out of school that day as a precaution because her brother had measles, and she was watching the burning ship from down near the pier where it exploded. The tower stands in the spot that she was blown to when the ship blew up, and it's up the hill. She flew for a distance. Her family and five siblings were killed in the blast. She was orphaned instantly. And every year, since 1985, on December 6th at 9.05 in the morning, those bells are rung in memory to those who were lost and those who survived to rebuild. We are just about to hit the 103rd anniversary. And, uh, and yeah, that has been the aftermath of the Halifax explosion. We hope you enjoyed this episode and our many descriptions of Buckets of Eyes. I don't know if enjoyed is the right word. I hope you, like, didn't puke. We hope you savored our descriptions of oh, blown no, off don't. toes and streets full of chunky man soup. Mm, We hope you still have a will to go on after that. (laughs) We hope you survived this episode of Fat French and Fabulous. (laughs) We hope you endured this episode. It's always kind of the best we can uh, hope for. (laughs) Oh, and fun fact, news just came in from McLean's Magazine. Grand Prairie, Alberta, my hometown, has been listed the ninth most dangerous city to live in. 
in Canada for 2020. Yay! <laughs> We're number nine. We're number nine. I think you can do better next year. I think Jessica alone can see to it that you do better. <laughs> We're working our way up the rankings. Single-handedly ruin the neighborhood. I, I will destroy the place of my birth. <laughs> Huzzah. I have been Jessica. And I have been Janelle. And we have been Fat, fat French, French, and, and Fabulous. fabulous.